Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We are a Seattle-based community that believes all people are icons of the invisible God, made in his image to reflect his glory and grace. So we are almost done with this series confronting Genesis uh, that has been a mashup of the book of Genesis, these first 12 chapters, and uh, a book written by Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin called Confronting Christianity, which is a great book and highly recommend it. And we've kind of done a mashup of these two things. So uh, starting from this Genesis text and then kind of broadening to these big themes that we've been doing, like the meaning of life and human dignity and Christianity and science and gender and sexuality and suffering and evil and all these big, heavy topics. And a couple of times during this series, I've had people ask me very sincerely, um, why are we doing these big kind of controversial topics? Uh, why, Why are we doing that? Why can't we just kind of be in a book of the Bible or do some other thing? And it's a good question. And I will say very distinctly why we're not doing this, and it's not because we want to be interesting. I have no interest in being interesting, actually, and, uh, and so that's not it. Um, but here's the reason why. We want to answer the questions people are asking. And as a pastor, I've been a pastor for almost 20 years now, the questions that we are answering during this series are the most common questions I get asked as a pastor. Okay, so what does Christianity think about evil or what does Christianity think about gender? What does Christianity think about human dignity or race and diversity, which we're talking about next week? And all of these big issues that are important questions that culture in general is asking of Christianity, but that we in everyday life are being asked or are wrestling with ourselves. And so that's the main reason to kick off our church, which is now 11 weeks old or whatever it is, um, by saying, hey, you know, Christianity has well thought out and logical answers. There is a coherent system of thought here that has addressed these big questions for a really long time. Sometimes I get asked things like, well, how can a good God allow evil and suffering? As if that person is the first person to ever think of that question, right? And they're not, right? Like they're, they're the 10 millionth person to ask uh, that question and have it answered for them. And so um, the Bible has answers. Now, they may not be answers that satisfy you and, and okay, But there is a coherent system of thought that I I do think uh, presents a worldview that is really compelling. So that's one. Two is, in the midst of that, I do think it, in a very healthy way, challenges us to say, if we do disagree with the answers the scriptures give us, why? Why? What's your answer? And where do you get your answer? What do you think about evil and suffering and human dignity and all of these kinds of things, right? Like, why do you think what you do? And I hope this series has pushed you a little harder because some of the questions that seem like these slam dunk, oh man, you know, how can a good God uh, allow such evil and suffering? That's a killer for Christianity. And I would suggest, one, it's really not. I think I handled it pretty well last week. Uh, and, uh, and two, uh, it's actually a really hard question for anyone. Uh, especially if you are not a religious person. So that's what we're doing. This week, we're continuing this series by talking about judgment and wrath and hell. Good times. So the question of hell is a difficult question at, on its face. The idea of how could a loving God send people to hell um, does seem to present a, uh, a difficulty. 
And as a preacher who has to communicate these ideas, sometimes there is um, amongst, in fact, I was reading a book uh, this week about hell and this topic, and the introduction to the book said, many preachers these days don't want to talk about hell. And I don't know if that's true because I don't listen to many preachers, um, but I don't dislike talking about hell. Okay. And that may sound like I'm a mean person, and I am, but not for this reason. The reason I don't mind talking about hell is this. It's either true, and therefore we should talk about it, or it's not true, in which case we should all go home. Those are our options, right? Because the Bible talks about hell a lot, and nobody in the Bible talks about hell as much as Jesus does. Okay. More than half of all of the references to hell, Genesis to Revelation, are spoken by Jesus. So either hell is real and you probably want to know about it and how to avoid it specifically, or it's not real and this whole thing's wasted time. Okay? So it would be as if uh, you went to the doctor and got a scan and the doctor found cancer and turned to the, his doctor friends and were like, they have cancer, but I mean, that's pretty harsh and, uh, you know, it's going to be kind of a bummer for them and, you know, it's got this death sentence. I don't really want to talk about it. And so the doctors agree, hey, we're not going to talk about it. We're just going to kind of let them go on with their life. And then inevitably the person dies of cancer. And we ask to ourselves, was that right So we want to talk about this stuff because, again, if it's real, we want to know about it. If it's not, go home and eat hamburgers or something. Or watch a replay of the Sounders. It's trying to pull us back up out of the funk. Okay. So to do that, we're going to do Genesis chapter 4. Go ahead and turn there. Uh, talking about the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel as we continue in Genesis. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and for those of you new to the Bible, that means they were together in that way. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, this is the setup, right? Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain is a farmer. Abel is, uh, sorry, yeah, Cain's a farmer. Uh, Abel is a rancher. Okay, uh, they both bring offerings to God. Uh, God likes uh, Abel's offering. He doesn't like Cain's offering. That's what it means to have regard for. It just basically means to look on fondly, right? And the difference between them, as the text makes plain, is that it says Cain brought an offering from the fruit of the ground, where it says that Abel brought the first fruits of the fat portions of the animal. And so it was the best of his brisket, basically. And uh, Cain brought some of his cauliflower, okay? Now, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to guess which one God wanted more, right? The good brisket or the cauliflower. 
this God is very logical, okay? Not vegan, clearly, okay? <laughs> so the, the difference between their offerings is, is kind of the key piece that this story turns on, right? That Cain brought just some of his stuff, his, the fruit of his work to God as an offering to him. And, and, and think of it not in the sacrificial system sense that we may or may probably never get into if we teach Leviticus, um, but more as an expression of love for God, an expression of devotion for God, an expression of commitment and relationship to God. Cain brings just kind of some of his vegetables Abel chooses of the first fruits, which scripturally speaking always means the best of, and the fatty, so the tastiest portions, really the best of the best of the best that Abel had to offer. This is the difference between the two of them, right? Let's keep going. So Cain was angry at God's response. Cain was angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So I love this moment. This is one of my favorite early moments of uh, uh, God, between, relationship between God and humanity. So Cain and Abel bring their offerings. One of them has clearly thought, gosh, I want to honor God. I want to show God how much I love him. I want to show God how much I care about it, how much, how committed I am to the relationship. So I'm going to take of my best, sacrifice either my enjoyment of the brisket or my friend's enjoyment of the brisket, or I could sell the brisket at the market uh, or whatever it may be. I am going to sacrifice the gain that I could get from the, literally the best of what I have, and I'm going to offer that to God as a reflection of my love for him. Cain, on the other hand, withheld the best of his vegetables, which is what? I don't know. Carrots? What does that mean? What's the best vegetable? It's not even... It's hardly a category. Um, but just, but you have to see Cain's heart in this. He goes, here, I'll just grab whatever of my vegetables and offer that to God. So God looks at their offering and, and doesn't care about the offering per se, but instead looks at them and looks at their hearts and says to Abel, looks with regard for Abel's offering and does not look with regard on Cain's offering, but it's not about the thing, it's about their heart. He looks at Abel and goes, gosh, Abel, you obviously love me. So one of the things this reminds me of is a near daily occurrence, which is my children will bring to me their art. Art. It's terrible, okay? They, I mean, they can't even handle stick figures at this point, and it's an embarrassment, okay? But they will bring their art to me, and what is obvious sometimes is that you can tell who, which kid's idea it was to make art for daddy because they have built out a whole scene and there's a sun and there's grass and dad has more hair and, and there's always, it, it, it's hilarious. My kids always draw me with like five hairs and I'm like, hey, I'll take it. So 
they, there's, there, it's a more robust picture, and you can tell which kid kind of got talked into it because it's just like pencil, and there's no color, and there's no hair, and that's probably why I hate it. But I, it's clear to me who put interest into it, who cared about it, who was drawing a picture for me, and who was just kind of going along with it. And so God sees the hearts of Cain and Abel and and responds to the way in which they've come to him. And in the immediate aftermath, Cain says, says, Cain's face fell, his countenance fell, and he became angry. Now, what is God's immediate response? He goes to Cain. He says, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Basically, if you respond to this situation well, if you can acknowledge what just happened, if you can just acknowledge to me that in this moment, Abel brought his best and you brought some, and and, and if you could just look at me and go, you know what, God, you're right. Like, I I didn't bring what Abel brought. Abel really sacrificed for you and I didn't. And you know what, I'm sorry. That doesn't reflect my heart. That doesn't reflect my love for you. And I, I want to I make that right. Not because God needed the best of the vegetables, because it was a reflection of Cain's heart. So in the moment, God presses into Cain, says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. And this is the same idea that God, when he was doling out curses in Genesis chapter 3, talked about the desire that Eve would have to master, to have power over Adam. This is the same idea. That he's saying sin has a desire to rule you, Cain. He says, but you must rule over it. God's warning him that sin is waiting. It's crouching, ready to devour you in this moment. That sin wanted Cain to be angry, to blame, to lash out, to justify his actions. This is Cain's turning point. This is his opportunity. God has moved towards him. This is his opportunity to move towards God. But he doesn't. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain's selfishness becomes bitterness and blame. His blame becomes murder. His murder is justified, he justifies it to himself and it hardens him to the point that he becomes cynical and even disrespectful to God's face, belittling God's concern for his creation. Cain knows what he's done. Cain knows that he has murdered his brother, murdered God's creation. And when God comes to him and says, Cain, where's your brother? That he actually belittles God's concern by saying, Who am I? Am I supposed to keep track of my brother? This is the spiral of sin in Cain. 
that this, this little moment of selfishness and his unwillingness to repent, his unwillingness to respond to the gracious move of God towards him led him to uh, blame and bitterness and hardness and cynicism and murder. And God responds with judgment. It says, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. God's judgment is passed on Cain. He says that he's a murderer and that the, the kind of the thing that he did, his vocation, his, his means of livelihood as a farmer was taken from him. These are the seeds of God's judgment. This is the work, this beginning of what we see play out throughout the rest of the scripture. That God has created all of mankind, created all the rest of creation. And when his creation rebels against him and rebels against one another, that there is judgment and wrath for it. Now, in, in this given situation, we may understand God's wrath and go, yeah, Cain murdered Abel. There is a, a rightful wrath that God would have. And so oftentimes when, when there is a sin that is to us unthinkable, like we would never murder another person, it seems like such, a, such kind of another category of sin. It, it seems as if we have more allowance in our minds or hearts for the wrath of God. Like it makes sense. We can wrap our minds around it a little easier. It's when sin gets nearer to us. It's when we read that God has wrath for the kinds of sin that we actually could imagine ourselves doing that things get a little more uncomfortable and we get more uncomfortable with the idea of the wrath of God. And yet the first thing we have to see about the wrath of God is that the wrath of God is always born out of an explosion of God's love. Becky Pippert wrote a book called Hope Has Its Reasons. And in it, she writes this, Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. Human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. If I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. Love and wrath, in that sense, are symbiotic. Without deep love, there is no wrath. And without wrath, there is no love. 
Someone who responds with just benign tolerance has no love for the people that are being destroyed and hurt and ravaged by sin done by themselves to themselves or by others to them. It is only deep, deep love that can result in wrath. Cain does here an interesting thing. Instead of finally repenting, God has laid out this judgment and Cain still has opportunity to repent, but instead he complains that his judgment is too harsh. Verse 13, says, Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So Cain has been driven from the ground, his work, his identity, his livelihood, and he fears for his safety, but he also says that he's been driven from God's presence. Why would he say that? Because God didn't say that, to be clear. Right, I mean, even going back to the very beginning of the story, the pattern over and over has been Cain withholding from God and then God responding to Cain's sin with pursuit. And then Cain murdering Abel and God coming back to Cain and saying, Cain, what did you do? And even after pouring out judgment, rightful judgment on Cain for murdering his brother, and when Cain complains, God does what? He protects. He protects Cain again saying, no, nobody can kill Cain because Cain's time is not up. God is still pursuing Cain. God still loves Cain. And yet, at the end, it says that Cain went away from the presence of God. This story is a paradigm for both how sin works and and also for what hell is. Uh, Augustine, St. Augustine in the 5th century was an African Catholic priest uh, and he wrote a book called The City of Gods, one of the probably five most influential Christian books ever written. And in it, he builds the case that the way sin works in a person is by turning a person in towards themselves. The phrase he coined in the Latin is incurvatus in sea, or curved in towards oneself. That the move of sin is the constant move towards oneself, kind of more and more and more self-involved, less and less and less uh, caring about those around you or about God, but more and more obsessed with the self. A thousand years later, Martin Luther built out this same idea in his lectures on Romans. He said this. He said, our nature, by the corruption of the first sin being so deeply curved in on itself, that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them, as is plain in the works righteous and the hypocrites, or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts 
but it also fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. The kids liked it. Hell is, as C.S. Lewis once said, the greatest monument to human freedom. It is, the, it is the natural eventuality of people more and more and more curved in on themselves for all eternity without the intervening grace of God. In fact, for this message, I almost just stood up here and read to you aloud The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. If you have not read that, I think you ought to very much. It is one of the most divisive books of Lewis's. People tend to either love it or hate it, and, uh, and you should love it. In it, he talks about both the nature of hell and the nature of heaven allegorically, so uh, it, it, it can be esoteric in places, but he, he says this. He says, the whole difficulty of understanding hell is that the thing to be understood, hell itself, is so nearly nothing. But you will have had experiences. He says, it begins with a grumbling mood, hangry. And yourself still distinct from that mood, perhaps criticizing it. And yourself, maybe in a dark hour, maybe will will that mood, might even embrace that mood. But you can still repent and come out of it again. But there may come a day when you can do that no longer. And then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. Is hell then just a state of mind that persists after death, Lewis asks? Then those people are right who say that heaven and hell are only states of mind. Hush, George MacDonald, his guide through this whole thing, says sternly. Do not blaspheme. He says, hell is a state of mind. Ye never said a truer word. And every state of mind left to itself, every shutting up of the creature within the dungeon of its own mind is in the end, hell. But heaven is not a state of mind. Heaven is reality itself. All that is fully real is heavenly. So one of the things that's important to understand about this question of hell is that the vast majority of our kind of pop culture representation of hell has no founding in Scripture. As we think of it as this place that is kind of the eternal fire where we're just burning up all the time and maybe Hitler's next to us and, and, and Satan and the demons are like torturing us in this, that is not the biblical picture of hell. Yes, the Bible uses imagery of fire. It also uses a lot of other imagery like darkness. It's hard to imagine literal fire and literal darkness being in the same situation tells us that we are dealing with imagery and metaphor. Now, some have said, hey, this is just imagery and metaphor, it's not real. Sure, maybe. 
but does an image and metaphor of fire and darkness sound like it's a metaphor for something good? No. So, sure, I'll grant you, it's image and metaphor, but it's image and metaphor for something horrific. In fact, um, I think a better way for us to visualize um, what hell is is by going to Romans chapter 1. I think we see a continuation of the paradigm that we saw here in Genesis chapter 4. Romans chapter 1, which we are going to teach uh, in the spring, uh, verse 18 starts here. And I'm going to kind of skip through this section uh, just to give an overview because it's a longer section. But it says, Paul says, for the wrath of God, Okay, here's what we're talking about. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. So, stop there for a second. This is the situation. Paul says God's wrath is being poured out on people who have, instead of worshiping God as God, have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for earthly things, for tangible things that they have then given their life to. So the immediate practical application in Paul's time was what he says at the end, at the end images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. In our time, it's images resembling mortal man and work and stuff, and houses, and cars, and relationships, and all of the things that we fill our lives with to be our functional saviors that aren't God. Here's what that wrath looks like. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Skip to verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Skip to verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is hell. God giving us up to ourselves without his gracious intervention for all eternity. Hell is eternity without God pursuing ourselves. This is darkness and fire and punishment and wrath and judgment. This is the picture that the scriptures give us. And, and what's What's maddening to me, what's difficult to me about this whole thing is this kind of illogical and, and really borderline hypocritical relationship that we have with this idea of wrath. 
Because on the one hand, we, we really want wrath in some situations. In fact, just two weeks ago, we were talking about evil and suffering and asking, how can a good God allow so much evil in the world? And now we're asking, how can a good God not punish evil in the world? So it, at some point, we can't hold those two ideas together. At some point, they contradict. We can't both be angry at God for allowing evil and for punishing it. And so, in fact, uh, Miroslav Volf, whose name is super fun to say, um, and uh, is a professor at Yale uh, and, a, and a Christian and saw firsthand the Balkan genocide, says this. He says, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. He says, my thesis will be unpopular with man in the West. But imagine speaking to people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been mistreated, whose fathers and brothers have been murdered. Your point to them, we should not, re uh, we should not retaliate. Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and violence and did not make a final end of it, that God would not be worthy of our worship. So there's a sense in which we want God's wrath and we want judgment and we see it. There's this category of sin that we go, okay, but yeah, for that stuff, yeah, we need to, we need to deal with that. And it would be unjust for God to not hold those people accountable. But on the other hand, we also don't want wrath and for two pretty good reasons. One is that it means our sin really does matter. And that's the flip side, right? This is why we don't want hell and wrath to be true. It's our comfortable double standard. But sin does matter. We have, as a culture, trivialized God's creation and our destruction of it. What's more, we are offended by the idea that our freely made choices might later be condemned and that we would be punished for them. So we eliminate the judgment instead of the behavior. And what's remarkable is that we are willing to do away with judgment for everyone, even the most heinous of sinners because of our self-interest in eluding judgment ourselves. But it's not just that. It's not just self-serving. 
We also don't like the, hell, the idea of hell and judgment because each of us has brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and friends and grandparents who don't follow Jesus. And we fear for them. We mourn for them as we rightly should. But again, our response ought not to be just to choose to disbelieve an eventuality. Our response ought to be to love and pursue to an even greater degree the way God did for Cain and the way God does for us. That God's response to constantly pursue, even in the face of Cain's murder of his brother, that God's God's pursuit of his heart and pursuit of his presence was his right response, and it ought to be ours. You see, the most remarkable and, in fact, important thing for Christians to understand about hell is that Jesus went there for us so that we never have to. But that's the, the good news of the gospel. That God made us for himself, made us for relationship with him, and will and has pursued that relationship with us the same way he pursued it with Cain. So that we might know him at ultimate cost to himself. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain says this, there are only two kinds of people those who say, thy will be done to God, or those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. In The Great Divorce, Lewis demonstrates allegorically what Jesus says plainly. Those who are unwilling to release their hold on idolatry and embrace Jesus are condemned already. Already living a life enslaved to the things that they are asking to make them satisfied. Condemned to a life of relentless pursuit, obsession, shaming, blaming, excusing, failure, hopelessness, and self-righteousness. Jesus bids us to come into the light, to lay our actions, our thoughts, our desires bare before him, to let him shine light in all of our darkest places and finally experience life for the first time, life without shame, without hiding, without guilt, without fear of impending doom. So yes, the ask of the gospel is to repent and believe, but it's the ask of the gospel is to follow the God who died for you. The ask of the gospel is to, is to follow the God who went to hell for you so you don't have to. That, that experience death so that you might have life. So yes, it's an ask, but it's literally choosing life. So I, I am not sad to preach hell. I'm sad that there are, there are any who might end up there. I'm sad that there are any who might reject the offer of God for eternal life. 
I'm sad for those who would cling to the trivialities of our world, these little things that we cling to, begging them to make us whole, begging them to make us happy, begging them to satisfy us, though they never do, and we just go from thing to thing to thing, hoping the next thing will be the thing that satisfies them, forgetting that the thing we just asked used to be the thing we wanted to satisfy us, and it didn't, and it won't, and it never will. All the while, God continues to pursue, continues to make himself known to us the way he did to Cain saying, come and have life, be with me. Relinquish this foolish pursuit that you have and just come be with me. This is the offer of the gospel. Let's uh, let's take a few questions. They are all over the board. Uh, Number one, uh, what about those who practice other religions who may never have the chance to hear about Jesus? Do they get the chance to choose heaven? This is a great, great question and, and a pretty common one. Um, and, and I would say this, it's, it's similar to uh, some of the questions about evil and suffering in the sense that um, I, I can't know what everybody else has experienced. I can't know what, who has heard enough about Jesus, enough times to be responsible or whatever. I can't know that. What I can know is the character of God. What I can know is God's desire for all to be saved, as the scriptures say. It says that God is patient because he desires that all would be saved. So my answer is, I don't know and I trust Jesus, right, who died for the sake of the world, as John 3 and many other places tell us. So uh, the, the the theoretical question, I can only answer with what I do know and what the scriptures do specifically address, which is God is good, God loves, God died, God desires that all would be saved. How that plays out specifically, I don't know, and yet I put my trust in God to be just and gracious in that situation. That's the best I can say. Uh, second question. Are we in hell? Feels like it, huh? I actually love this question. It says, like Dante's seven circles of hell, are we on like the first circle in limbo and sin is only here because we're in hell and we've been given a second chance to find Jesus and redemption? I love this. Uh, because there's like a matrix kind of version of this question that makes me really excited. Um, my, uh, in a sense, yes. In a sense, yes. Like to the degree that, or, or when we think about it, this is why I think um, it, it's a much more helpful way to think about hell, to think about it as separation from God because in, very, in a very real sense, we are experiencing separation from God. Now, we are not experiencing the full separation of God that would be our eventuality, should we stay on that kind of trajectory, nor are we experiencing the full presence of God as Adam and Eve did in the garden, that we know sin has separated us from God. So in a sense, yes, 
we are experiencing hellishness. We are experiencing separation from God and, and to degrees, right? Like some of us are here and you are not a Christian and one, super glad you're here, super thankful that you would be here tonight, but you are by your own choice separating yourself from God and therefore experiencing what Christians would describe as a hellish experience, which is a lack of the presence of God. So part of the Christian pursuit uh, or the pursuit of the Christian life is the pursuit of the presence of God, the ever presence of God, not the presence of God in some sort of charismatic woo-woo kind of way necessarily, but in a constant connection to uh, uh, killing of sin, pursuit of relationship kind of presence of God. So I think my answer is yes, but maybe not in the cool way you mean it, like that we're in a simulation that's actually hell or like, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I, there's part of me that wishes that were true because just because it sounds more fun, but, uh, but kind of yes. Okay. Uh, let me do this last one. Did Jesus literally go to hell? What do you mean by this? That's a great question. So part of the creed, part of the Apostles' Creed, is that Jesus descended into hell. This is part of the, some of the original, earliest creeds of the Christian church. And again, I will lean on this, this way of thinking about hell, which is not, not just biblical, but in fact, a, a, the historic way that we have thought about hell. Much of the kind of more modern description of hell is not only uh, not biblical, but it's not even what historically Christians have thought about, how Christians have thought about hell. It's much more, and, and I don't know if you guys remember the Far Side comics. You guys remember that? It was one of my favorite comics. And, and they would do a ton of depictions of hell. There's like these single frame comics that were hilarious, but they perpetuated this idea of demons kind of overseeing these men mostly in hell, working in the midst of fire, sweating, and the demons are taking coffee breaks and things like that, and it was hilarious. But it, it perpetuates this mythology that is an unbiblical mythology about what hell is. So in the sense that on the cross, we remember Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That in that moment where Jesus took on sin and became sin, according to Paul, he experienced a distance from God because of that sin in a way that he had never experienced before and to a degree that none of us have ever experienced before because we've never had our own sin and all other sin in past, present, and future and all of history put on us. So yeah, in a very real sense, uh, Jesus, especially after his death, experienced this separation from God. Now, if we think about hell as this place where Satan's got the pitchforks and all of this, did Jesus go to some kind of place like that? I think not, first of all. And that's not a super helpful way to think about it kind of as a paradigm, okay? So Jesus experienced significant distance and, and separation from God when he died with our sin. So in, in that sense, yes, he descended into hell. Now, some of the language around descended can, is tricky and, and hard, and it makes us visualize place more than relationship, which I think is what obscures some of that for our brains. Hope that's helpful. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. 
For more information, go to iconchurch.org.